The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Second Samuel 23. Listen to God's word. I'm going to also read a part from 1 Kings. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Here's what he said. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away. For they cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire." And just to add a little more perspective to this last time on David, 1 Kings chapter 2, I just read a short, two short pieces here. 1 Kings 2, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go to the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne." Of Israel, and then skipping down the column to the very last two verses or three verses, ten through twelve. Then David slept with his fathers, and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was forty years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and thirty-three years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. This is God's Word. We're thinking about last words today. I read somewhere a long time ago about a Scottish Presbyterian minister of several centuries ago who made sure that he got the last word with his congregation. This man's name was Thomas Hogue, 
and he served what they call in Scotland the Kirk at Kiltern, Scotland for a number of years as their pastor. He was a faithful, very godly man with using God's Word properly and correctly, and many souls responded to Christ under his ministry. But Thomas Hogue wanted to be sure that the ministry of the gospel would not be forgotten in that church. So he left an instruction that his grave was to be in the cemetery right near the pathway that led to the main doors of the church where the congregation would have to pass his grave every Sunday. And he further left instruction that his tombstone be inscribed to say this, and it's on there to this day, this stone shall bear witness to the Lord against the people of Kiltern if ever they dare bring an ungodly minister into this pulpit. I like ministers who get the last word. <laughs> Thomas Hogue certainly did. Today, in a final look at the life of David, we consider last words of a rather different sort. The choir has said them in song, and we have read here in 2 Samuel 23 what are called the last words of King David, the man after God's heart. And we're going to examine this epitaph a little bit. David should be remembered by us as more than simply a courageous youth who killed a giant. He's much more than a skilled king whose administration was able to build a nation up to high-level political and geopolitical strength, even though his government never extended that well into his own family. And he's much more than just a great singer of songs in praise to God. There are people who would say God broke the mold after he made David because no human successor to his throne in all the centuries as you go down through Solomon and the others and after the kingdom divided into Israel and Judah, two parts, there really is no one who can be found to match the godliness, the sincerity of repentance, the bold courage and zeal for God that David showed. You would think him nearly the perfect man if we didn't know how imperfect he also was. Very much imperfect. Glaring flaws in his multiple marriages done in disobedience to the command of the Lord. Glaring flaws in taking Bathsheba and having her husband killed. But the great thing as we've studied this man is when confronted with the Word of God, he fell to his face very readily and said, I have sinned against the Lord. Something that is very hard for kings in particular to do, and hard, I would say, for any of us, really, as we bow before God. David is meant to be a human pattern for something that comes along after him, an archetype, you might call him. Someone would be recast in the mold of David without the flaws of David. And that's what we're to think about today as we see how he points us to the royal person of what the Bible calls David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Acts 13, verse 36 says this, when David had served the purpose of God in his generation, he fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and his body saw decay. The emphasis was, look, 
You folks in the New Testament age admire David, and rightly you do, but he was only a man. And he's dead in that tomb right over there that they were able to point to that time in Jerusalem. He was only a man. And the things that are said about him will be one day said about each of us. How we avoid any thought of the day that we will die. I feel less able to avoid that because of the number of funerals I have to be involved in every single year, more so than any of you, I think. Just yesterday, in this sanctuary, we said honor to the life and honor to the Savior of one of our members, Janet Hoover. And you're reminded as you hear grandchildren and others declaring the praises of a godly life, what's going to be said about me when I've served my purpose, as the Scripture says here about David, and I rest in a tomb? We each have a purpose that God wants us to fulfill. It's certainly not always the purpose of leading a great nation or accomplishing great military deeds or perhaps being a famous uh, prophet of God or something like that, but we all have a humble purpose for our lives. It may be as small as giving shape to the life of an individual child whose accomplishments, whose ministry will far out exceed your own someday. I've always been interested in the testimonies of, of great people, great missionaries, those who have done things that have literally shaken the world for Christ. It's so interesting to find out that quite often they were led to Christ by some very humble person, a neighbor, a grandmother, a parent, somebody whose name isn't enshrined in the Hall of Fame of the Bible, but who fulfilled their purpose before they went to their grave as David fulfilled his. Well, first of all, I want you just to look at some history to be filled in a little bit. We don't have one comprehensive telling of the last months of David's life. It's kind of interesting. It's scattered around. It's here in the end of 2 Samuel where I read in, in chapter 23, and there's some more to follow actually that I didn't go into. And it's also in uh, 1 Kings where I read of his actual death. And it's also found at the end of the book of 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and 29 has some things I'll just dip into for a moment here this morning. And we could say perhaps if we really wanted to find David's last words, that they're in several places, but one of them is, is called his last words, his epitaph. But first of all, just to get some of this history, I make this point that the king is dead. Long live the king. In 1 Kings 1, David is dying, slowly dying. Chapter 1 tells of it, that he was advanced in years. They couldn't cover him up enough to keep him warm. If you're an older person, you probably know something about that. And it tells about his illness, and he was fading physically, and uh, how even his multiple wives and his several sons still left, even though a couple of them were already dead. There were enough sons left to be fighting over his throne while dad is in the palace dying. And we're told in First Kings about the son Adonijah, who is the one who's left, 1 Kings 1, 5 and following, you can read about Adonijah, who decides it's high time. I'm the oldest. Why doesn't elderly dad get out of the way and let me be king? So he says, well, look, I don't think dad's going to oppose anything. I'm going to throw a banquet, invite the rich and powerful of the nation, and declare myself to be king. 
And that's exactly what he did. And people were celebrating some of the rich and powerful. General Joab came, and Joab was always ready to throw his weight wherever he saw opportunity. And he thought, David's day is done. I'm going with Adonijah. So they're having a banquet, and little known to them, the prophet Nathan says to Bathsheba, go talk to David. Remind him of the prophetic promise that your son, Solomon, is to be the king. Bathsheba did that. David said, yes, that's right. Solomon is to be king. He crowned Solomon on the spot, young Solomon, much younger son than Adonijah. And the almost humorous scene, if you want to read there in 1 Kings, you can follow it. They're having this coronation party, and they hear shouts in the street, long live the king, long live King Solomon. And that got their attention as suddenly the coronation party for Adonijah was over and it was over permanently. Then First Chronicles 28 and 29 puts some more information in place as David has a conversation with Solomon and tells him about the plans to build the temple. That Remember that, that David was going to do that. We talked about this in past weeks. The Lord said, no, you're a man of blood, a man of battle. It's good that you had it in your heart to do it, but you're not going to build it. Your son is. So we remember David gathered a lot of materials, stone and wood and everything, and he had plans that apparently were God-inspired plans. And so 1 Chronicles 28, 29 has David saying this to Solomon, My son, know the God of your father. Serve him with your whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you will seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. You see that the important thing with David was that his son, above all else, would seek and glorify God. Putting up a building was secondary. Now, David wanted that temple to be built and did everything to empower Solomon to be able to do it. But it wasn't just an unfinished building project that mattered. It was the glory of God. And he said, my son, you finish and bring glory to God through this project. Honor God Most High in a way I was not able to finish. There's a further charge to Solomon in 1 Kings 2.2 that I mentioned, just to fill in this background a little bit. When David said another thing, he said, be strong and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walk in his ways, his statutes, and his commandments as written in the law of Moses. Didn't he think to himself, I didn't always keep the law of Moses. Not when I married those seven wives, I didn't. But he was commanding his son, don't follow my example. Go with the word of God. And then he, David said further, as the Lord told me, if your sons will walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and soul, you will not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So we have these charges of David, this wisdom overflowing from the elderly king to his next king, son, Sadly, we can't say that Solomon lived up to all of it, great a man as he became. He was wise. He was discerning. God gave him a gift of wisdom to solve problems and see through difficulties that was beyond anyone. He had tremendous wealth. We read that people came to visit Solomon from far kingdoms, and they marveled as they ate dinner at his table on solid gold plates. But despite that, we also know that Solomon married many wives 
from many backgrounds and many kingdoms who brought their gods and their idols to Israel, and Solomon allowed it. And Solomon did not please the Lord and did not have entire zeal to seek after the Lord despite these warnings of his father. Well, that's the historical part of Long Live the King. But let's now go to the main text that I put before you today, 2 Samuel 23, 1 and following, that are called by the Scripture itself the last words. Now, no one thinks that these were literally the last syllables. It's not as if David was on his bed and he just breathed out this and then he died. No, that's, we're not quite that literal about this. But it was last words in the sense of his final legacy, a concluding statement of what his life had all been all about and, and what he saw God doing as his principles of obedience to God went forward into the next generations. And so you could call this second point a prophecy about the rule of God, the government of God in history. Second Samuel 23, 1 and following calls it an oracle of David. Oracle is a word that means prophecy, prediction, something based on the wisdom of your life, and you say, now this is true, and here's what is going to be true as I look forward, and as God the Spirit speaks through me. And David was directly claiming that here. He said, the Lord is using me as his prophet as he speaks here. And he's speaking a summary lesson about the government of God among human beings. And he announced in beautiful poetic images here what a wonderful distinction it is when God governs people. You can always know when a dictator or a a tyrant is governing because he comes in with his armies and smashes things and pushes people around and exerts his will and forces his will by strength. That's one kind of government but it's not God's kind. When God governs, he governs very differently. And this beautiful poetry that was put to music by the choir, when one rules in justice over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like sun shining on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass sprout from the earth. The poetry is beautiful. But the truth underneath it is beautiful, too. This is saying, look, God isn't the God who comes in with Hitler's uh, blitzkrieg of tanks to take over nations and subjugate them to his selfish pride and will. This is your God who comes in the strength of his beauty. Like a wonderful, this is the right time of year for this imagery, I can tell you that. Like a, a May or June morning when you wake up and the sun is brilliant and the sky is blue and you, you feel it's going to rain. And boy, we need that, don't we? I'm telling you, it's, it's going to come today, they say, if the weatherman's right. The rain that comes to make the grass sprout from the earth. In other words, government that makes things grow that nourishes, that strengthens, that brings out the best. And there are two prime qualities for this government of God exercised through men that are singled out here. A zeal for justice and the fear of God. Now think about those two things. Most nations don't rise any higher than the leaders that they have. Leaders at every level. I'm not just talking about president or governor or senators. I'm talking about the judges in the local area, 
the principals of the high school, the directors of the hospital, all the ways in which leaders exert themselves. Nations don't rise higher than their leaders. And David is predicting here, after a lifetime of his own leadership, look, here's what you want to look for in leadership. People who love justice and who will rule in the fear of God and obedience to his word. That kind of leadership is like clear sunlight on a summer day and rain refreshing the earth. Just think about it. As America's rally of the dozens and dozens, it seems, of candidates for president in 2016 is increasing and increasing, how are we going to sort these people out? What if we were able to sort them out on this basis, the 2 Samuel 23 basis? Where is the one who loves justice for each and every individual with a great and passionate zeal? And where is the one who also will rule with no standard any higher for obedience in his or her life than obedience and yielding to the Word of God? Seeking justice, fear of God. If we find that candidate, we don't even need to hold an election. Can we pray together that God could bring us such a candidate? That would be what our country needs. 2 Samuel 23, you see, is not David patting himself on the back. Even though he says here in this passage in verse 5, does not my house stand this way with God? He's acknowledging that this is the leadership he has sought to do, but he's not saying, I've done it perfectly. He's saying the principles that God has taught me to seek justice and to fear God, these are the things that a leader must bring, a leader of any kind. And that person must exercise these qualities in a day when people rule by violence and by deception and by oppression and love of vice replacing social justice. How sad we are to hear just in the last couple days of a well-respected leader of Congress apparently paying cover-up money for something dark in his past. Pray for Mr. Hastert. He's a, he's a good man, but he's a man who, it seems, went wrong at some point. We have today people who don't seek justice. They certainly don't seek the will of God in the fear of God. Instead, they take apart, tear down moral virtues that our country has stood for for centuries, and they congratulate themselves as they tear things down. They gleefully dismantle the principles of our country. And yet, if you ask them, do you fear God? They probably would say, well, whatever that means, sure I do. Look for the exhibition of it, folks, not merely the declaration. You know, I speak to a whole room of people who occupy leadership. It's so easy for us to talk about leadership and think, well, he's talking about people who are elected or people who are in certain offices. No. I think these principles of seeking justice and acting in the fear of God apply to the kind of leadership that almost all of you do in one manner or another. If you're a parent, you're a leader. Now that sweeps up a lot of people in this room. If you work in business and have anyone reporting to you at any level, you're a leader. 
If you're a professional person, you're a leader. If you're in some civic organization or branch of, of local government or a teacher in a classroom, a business owner, there are dozens of ways you can have leadership. You're a leader if you exert influence over any other person of any age. Now, think of that and think of, do you seek justice for those who you influence? Do you seek equity and fairness for them and good treatment for them? And do you show a humble fear of God as you submit to His Word, exerting influence over others? You see, David is really telling us the very heart of godly leadership, leadership that will lead others to see the hand of God in this world. Well, thirdly, we end six months of journeying beside David here because this isn't simply teaching us some good principles about leadership. This passage is actually looking forward to a person who will personify the principles in a perfect way. And so I say to you thirdly that the biblical life of David can be wrapped up by saying David existed to point us to Jesus Christ, who is David's Lord. And we know that we're interpreting this passage the right way to say it points to Christ because we can find how the New Testament looks back on this very passage and interprets it that way. I mean Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. You wanted to flip there, Acts 2.30. You see Peter preaching only a few weeks after the resurrection of Jesus, and he says, he mentions David because he knows he's speaking to Israelites who revere David, and as a matter of fact, David's tomb was in the Kidron Valley, probably within sight of where Peter was speaking, just a little ways away, several hundred yards away. And here's what Peter said as he preached, brothers, I tell you confidently that David, he probably pointed at the tomb, David died and was buried in his tomb, which is near us today. But he spoke as a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would see one of his descendants on his throne. Who was that? Solomon? Well, David did see Solomon on a throne. But is that all he was talking about? Peter knew that the descendant of David predicted in 2 Samuel 23, whose government would be perfect, who would be like the sun shining on a cloudless morning and the refreshing rain falling on the earth in those brilliant images, that person was the ultimate greatest king of all. Peter and David joined their voices to speak prophetically of Jesus, the king of all kings. David's dying eyes saw the far horizon where there would be a ruler whose shining strengths and power blotted out the greatness of David or the greatness of Solomon or anyone else. And this oracle that he spoke as he predicted that was not just a speculation. I think maybe someday, somehow, there might be somebody who would embody. No. David was predicting a certainty a certainty that we know from our vantage point has already come true. And we already know that this future king has come. And he comes not to oppress or send his tanks out to destroy us or his harsh laws to beat us down. He comes to nurture us, to nourish us, to save us, to work 
justice for us, our ultimate good, and to show mercy to us. This King Jesus is an attractive King. We're drawn to Him because earth has never seen anyone quite like Him. Christ reigns over history like that radiant dawn of a cloudless day, like that wonderful cool rain that comes to nourish dry and cracked earth. And we are the growing things that respond to this King of all kings and Lord of all lords. We've studied these two books of Samuel now for quite a while to show us David as a king who was mostly popular and beloved. Not always, but most of the time. Most people realize he served the glory of God more than his own self-interest. And we can make some comparisons between him and Christ, the future king. One is obvious. They both had very humble, obscure beginnings. Remember when they went, the prophet went looking for the king in, in David's father's house, and, and uh, they brought in the first raft of sons who were all NFL linebackers and handsome guys, and they looked them all over, and would it be this one, this one, this one? No, 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 no. Don't you have any more sons? I'm sure God sent me to this house. Oh, yes, there's one out in the field. He's the runt. He takes care of the sheep. Bring him in. You remember that? It was the son nobody noticed that God wanted. Does that have any similarity to Jesus born in dirty straw in the Bethlehem cave or stable? And like him also, these two men both faced very giant, one quite literally giant, and the other, Jesus faced giant obstacles as well and had to show a bold fate. Both of them learned to pray in the furnace of suffering. Both were hated and oppressed in their time and rejected and were lonely. But yet their differences are also significant. And the greatest of those are the fact that David sinned miserably and had to repent in great humility while Jesus resisted all temptation. And there's also the difference of David who forged a widespread military peace for his country by constantly having to wipe blood off the edge of his sword. And Jesus, who was no warrior in that sense, but who paid once for all for the sins of ourselves in blood, his own. Blood was important to both of them. So Paul summarizes in Acts 13. Listen as I read from him. Paul said, God found in David the son of Jesse a man after his own heart. From this man's descendants, God brought to Israel the Savior, he promised, the one-time king and the future king. And Paul went on in Acts 13 and said this, When David served the purpose in his generation God had for him, his body died and decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, I tell you, through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, the one-time king and the future came. Long before we were told in Psalm 2 that this future king, Jesus, the Son, would be the dividing line in history. People would go one way or another as they passed by him. You remember Psalm 2 when it said, kiss the Son lest he be angry with you? In 2 Samuel 23, 5 to 7, we hear the ending of this passage. 
And that says much the same thing. The sun is the dividing line. Either you will be with David and say, God has made in his son an everlasting covenant, ordered and secure. He will be my help and all my desire. Or you will go with those worthless men who are described here as being like thorns that no one can even handle with their hands. They have to take the shaft of a spear and lift the thorns to toss them on the fire where they can be consumed. If David were standing here, he would say this. Look to the future king who overshadows me in a way that a mountain soars above a molehill. And when you sin, bow low before that king. Receive the forgiveness he gives because he is mankind's redeemer. Rejoice in his beauty and his strength for he and no one else will be as the light of the morning when the sun rises, even a morning without clouds. David lived to point to Christ. Father, may we be looking where David pointed us. Thank you for the king who fulfilled all the things that even David in his greatness could not deliver. Thank you for the picture of Jesus we have in the Old Testament. Thank you for the opportunity we pray that we may have in coming weeks to see that king going toward his cross and what he taught us and what he was doing and how he interpreted that journey to Calvary. Be with us in this as well, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.